everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's Parsha podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel. This week's episode has been dedicated by Michelle Fagelin and Debbie Nosbaum in honor of their father's eighth yard site. Nathan Wardiger, Natan Ben Shlomo Elimelech. To sponsor an episode, contact the Matan office or email me at podcast at matan.org.il. Parshat Vayichi chronicles Yaakov's preparations for death. These preparations open with his request from Yosef that he be buried in Canaan and continues with the blessing of his two sons, a scene which has the potential to end disastrously, like Yaakov and Esav's blessing mix-up, but thankfully doesn't. Yaakov then calls all of his sons to deliver what is often called the Testament of Yaakov, mostly blessings and some curses that he bestows upon his children with many hints to their future tribal realities. Yaakov dies and mourning practices are observed both according to Egyptian and Israelite traditions. After this, the brothers have their final interaction with Yosef, a painful moment in time I'm sure we'll touch upon today, in which the brothers fear for their life, even though Yosef will assure them once again that he is not out to get them. Then the Torah recounts that Yosef passes away at the age of 110. While tremendous effort was made to bring Yaakov, back from Egypt. Yosef remains in Egypt and leaves instructions to remove his body at the right time. Yosef knows that while leaving Israel as a nuclear family to bury Yaakov only required permission from Paro, uprooting the extended family was not the undertaking for now. God would have to lead them on that exodus. Today I am joined by a new guest, Dr. Nahama Price, who is the director of Yeshiva University's Graduate Program for Advanced Talmud and Tanakh Studies, GPATS, and teaches Tanakh and Halakha at Stern College. She is a certified Yuetzal Halakha and currently serves as a Yuetzal Halakha for communities throughout the New Jersey area. Nechama is the author of Tribal Blueprints, a Magid imprint which analyzes the lives and personalities of the 12 tribes. Nechama, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. I said to Nechama before we officially started recording that I actually was a very anonymous student in her class literally 20 years ago. <laughs> and I keep getting a kick out of the fact that I could say that I did something 20 years ago when I was an adult then. So all of that is a, is a new experience, and I appreciate that. So it's a real pleasure to have you back here, someone that I learned from so many years ago. And we're here to jump into this last Parsha in Sefer Breshit. As, as our listeners know, we've been sort of dancing around these ideas of choices and chosenness. And and I'd love for you to sort of jump in to the ways that you you view this Parsha and how it concludes the book of Breshit. There's so many elements to it. We have family dynamics. We have we have the brother dynamics. We have our our life in Egypt and the transition almost into what will be coming in Sefer Shemot. So why don't you sort of take us a little bit into the world of how this Parsha concludes the book of Breshit. I happen to love this Parsha um, because I love all the stories that are found in Sefer Breshit and all the stories of, of course, the tribes, uh, which I spend so much time studying for my book. But what I love about Parshas Vayichi is it gives us the conclusion to so many different aspects of their stories. It really ends for us and answers so many questions that we might have had throughout some of the stories to be able to feel that it's come to some sort of conclusion by the end of the book. And I really feel that we can divide this part 
Parsha into four different parts, four different conclusion type stories. One is, of course, which we can begin with going in the order of the Parsha, Yosef coming back into his family. And how does he integrate back? And how does his, his father view his integration back into the family? And then, of course, is the question of rejection and selection, which we see happening again in the next generation of the blessing of Ephraim and Menashe. And then, of course, Yaakov's conclusion about each and every one of his sons in terms of the brachot that he gives them and the insight that we see in Yaakov. And, of course, ending the sibling rivalry discussion of the last encounter of Yosef and his brothers before he dies. This all occurs in this one Parsha. And it's really quite a fantastic Parsha to actually feel that you come to some sort of conclusion before we start the next chapter of Am Yisrael, which is, of course, Sefer Shemot. I think it's also really important because as we move away from, you know, Sefer Breshit, at least from sort of the 12th chapter and onward, really focuses on family. And we're about to jump and make a big leap into what's really already a nation, right? We're going to multiply. We're going to be more numerous than anything else. And I think that it's it's so important because we don't always get closure on many things. And, and you know, we'll talk about some of the points you're mentioning, obviously, and we'll go deeper into them. But in order to move on to the nation, we do have to have sort of a sense of what happened with the family. Now, the story of Yosef takes a long time to come to any sort of culmination. We would have to wait really on our tippy toes until the last moment. But I think that that's, it's so important because before we can become a nation, we do have to have with coming to terms and making peace with, with what happens in Breshit. So yeah, that's a really powerful idea. A hundred percent, especially because the surprise twist of Sefer Breshit is that the structure is we have a family and one is chosen and we have a family and one is chosen. And in all those journeys, that one chosen person has to separate from their family and from everyone else. And the ending of our Sefer is everyone's chosen. And that's what turns into Am Yisrael. So we have to understand how do we have this very surprising conclusion that we get at the end, which is the 12 sons of Yaakov become Am Yisrael. So the conclusion of that story is extremely significant. Yeah, and I'll just remind also that we spoke about that, I think it was two episodes ago, where we, we spoke about this idea that part of what was sort of tragic, and the and all, there's always a certain barrier of communication between parent and child, but something that was very clear is that Yaakov still very much felt that there had to be one that was chosen and didn't realize that the rules of engagement had changed by this generation. And so it's interesting to see how, while he felt like he had to choose, you know, early on in life or he was, his, his heart sort of sent him, you know, towards one son in particular, by the time he's going to give blessings and obviously some harsher words also to Shimon and Levi and others and Reuven, but he's going to address everybody. And so that like giving a, a blessing or giving, giving personal time, you know, to every single child is really reflects that idea that everybody here has a place. And that, you know, while in the Yaakov and Esav story, there was this you know difficult scene vying for a blessing. Now they don't have to fight for that blessing. That actually takes us into the first point, because the first point of the Parsha is that we have two different prakim of blessings. We have Parak Memchat, and then we have Parak Memtet. And what you're expecting, to some extent, is Parak Memchat, which is a blessing to Yosef and to nobody else. And then you get to Parak Memtet, where everybody gets a blessing, including Yosef. So here's where you feel that dynamic. Like, is it, as we began, Ela Todos Yaakov, Yosef, everything is about Yosef, and therefore we conclude with a blessing to Yosef, or is it we conclude with a blessing to everyone? And therefore the question you have to ask is, since the conclusion is Parak Memtet, everyone gets blessed, why do we need Parak Memchet? What's the goal of Parak Memchet? And if you actually look at the story of the relationship of Yaakov and Yosef as it's developing, there are two 
opposite perspectives you could have to the goal of Parak Memchet. The first perspective is the one you would have thought, which is Yosef is chosen. Ela told us Yaakov Yosef, he's the star of the show. We follow him throughout all the different stories. When he's in Mitzrayim, we're following him to Mitzrayim. The whole you know, end of Sefer Breshid is really about Yosef. And therefore, Parak Memchet is to tell him he's selected. He's different than everyone else. And Parak Memchet is Ephraim and Umenashe, Kruvim, Vishimon. Ephraim and Umenashe, they're like their own tribes, meaning, Yosef, you're the Bechor, you get double portion. So two of your sons get to be elevated to become tribes. And therefore, the conclusion of Parak Memchet is before I bless everyone else, because you're the Bechor, you get double blessing. And the double blessing is that you're sons are both going to become tribes and therefore you get double portion. And that's one way to conclude Sefer Breshit, which is the surprise ending isn't as surprising as we thought, which is Yosef, of course, is still chosen, but he's not chosen to the rejection of everyone else. He's just chosen as a special status to everyone else. The second way to look at it, which is completely different, is that Parak Mabchet is the warning to Yosef that he's not going to get the blessing he's expecting. He's expecting Malchus. He's expecting leadership that's how this whole story began, the fight over leadership, and that's going to be given to Yehuda in Parak Memtet, and that's the surprise ending. Everybody is chosen. Not only is everyone chosen, Yosef, you're not going to be chosen for leadership. Yes, secondary leadership Yosef certainly gets, but Yehuda's going to be chosen. And this is actually, there's hints to this type of perspective within Chazal, because there's, there's Midrashim like the Psikta Rabasi and others who hint to the fact that Parak Memchet is not about Yosef being given something elevated, but it's about Yosef now in fear that because he left the family, because he became Egyptian, because for a long period of time he didn't know if he was going to ever return to Am Yisrael and be part of Am Yisrael's mission, because his children are Egyptian, is he going to be accepted back? Is he allowed back into the fold or is Am Yisrael going to go on without him? And the Medrash tells us he was really scared. And that's what Parak Memchet is about. Yaakov saying, you're allowed back in. But the Medrash captures Yaakov had to hug the children and hope that he was allowed to bless them, that they could come back in to the fold. And Parak Memchet is saying to Yosef, you might have been out of the fold for a bit, but you're allowed back into Am Yisrael. And once you're allowed back into Am Yisrael, you're part of the the um, you're not the leader of the um. Perak Memted is you get a blessing alongside your brothers, but you're not number one in the blessing. You're in your age order of your blessing, and you don't get the blessing of leadership. So Perak Memcha has two opposing views to it, which is, is this elevating Yosef and the story is concluding the way we would have thought, Yosef being the chosen child, but given Bechora instead of being the only one chosen? Or is it, Yosef, you're one of us, you're one of the tribes, you're one of the 12. We thought maybe you were going to get rejected because of what happened to you, but you're allowed back in the fold. And therefore, Ephraim and Menashe, Kruvim and Shimon means Ephraim and Menashe are allowed to be part of Am Yisrael. I, I'll just bring two two short thoughts on that point. One is that I think that's something that sort of supports this idea that Yosef was acting out of scarcity, out of fear that he was going to be out of the out of the family legacy, is that he initiates this meeting, right? He hears his father is sick. That I mean, it could be that Yaakov called him, but it makes it seem as if Yosef is the one who initiated this meeting. And and we we know this happens a lot of times when people are about to lose a family member and they want to make sure something right something is made official. And we have this in other places in Tanakh. We have it, you know, where Natan wants to make sure that Bat Sheva gets 
gets David to say that Shlomo is to be the inheritor. I mean, we have other places in, that are related to this. And I think that's just one small, one small support for the reading that Yosef is concerned. The other thing that popped out also in that pasuk where, uh, where it says that Ephraim and Asher are Reuven v'shimon is that clearly on a shot level, it's exactly who explained it, which is that they're going to have the status of being my children. But what's interesting is that it picks two sons that Yaakov kind of disassociates from in the next parak, And so a part of me also feels like it even further elevates Ephraim and Menashe, meaning they're kind of going to replace. Obviously, they don't replace them. Those are tribes that exist, right? We have Reuven and Shimon, but Menashe and Ephraim, of course, become much more prominent tribes, much more larger, have a much bigger area. Uh, of course, Shimon Michal, they sort of get, you know, swallowed up into Yehuda later on in history. But there's something about that that feels almost like a jab to, to Reuven and Shimon later on, that, you know, these children who weren't even part of the original count are kind of going to little bit take their place. So that's just sort of an addendum right. to what you said. It's, it's, it sort of stands. I love that. And I would add to that, that, you know, the three main leadership tribes throughout history are Yehuda. And then, uh, and then, I mean, if you put aside Levi as the spiritual leader, but then Ephraim and then Menashe, and you might've thought it was going to be Ruvain, Shimon and Yehuda. Mm-hmm. So I love this idea that you're saying that Ruvain and Shimon are kind of replaced by Ephraim and Menashe in particular, not just in location of being the center of Eretz Yisrael and large properties, but also in leadership because our main leaders are going to end up being from Yehuda and then from Ephraim and then from Menashe. Yeah. So, yeah. And of course, famously, Perfect. we don't get any leaders really from Reuven and Shimon. They're not going no, to be the leading tribes. Which... So when we open up the scene of Ephraim and Menashe getting their blessing from Yaakov, we kind of, it's kind of like a cringeworthy situation, right? When someone's like says something socially awkward at the table and you're like, no, Yaakov, please don't do that again, right? Please don't choose one child over the other. Please don't favor another. And thankfully it ends well in this case and maybe we'll get into why. But can we talk a little bit about that? Because on one hand, it's beautiful that, that Yosef is sort of being officially kept in the family and of course will be officially kept in the family again in, in, in a chapter later. But sort of had how do we swallow this this scene with with Yaakov? He also does this really intense intense share about the losses of his life, and it's like a it's a painful episode. And then again, he does the choosing of a son. So I don't know. Maybe maybe speak to that for a little bit. These psukim for me, they 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 are heart wrenching, and they're heart wrenching because they're they're truthful and they're honest. You know, happily ever after is not always the ending of all stories, and what it shows is a conflict between two priorities, and they're both true priorities, right? On the one hand, we don't want to favor one child over the other. We want children to get along. We want, you know, there not to be favoritism, and we want to feel that everybody has significance on their own. On the other hand. And there are, for sure, when it comes to tribes and when it comes to blessing of tribes, there are some tribes who are going to have a bigger impact on Jewish history than others. They just are. And you feel it in the words. It says very clearly how Yosef puts the older child by the right hand and the younger child by the by the left hand. And then the Pasuk tells us, enough. he gets so upset when all of a sudden he sees that his father is switching the hands. And it's not just that he gets upset. He like, he you feel his pain when he says, no dad don't do this please this is the oldest one please put your right hand on this one and you feel not just the pain for his own children you feel his pain he's saying to to his father you know what happened to me 
because of the favoritism you showed, because you loved me more than everyone else, because you gave me a katona pasim, because it was so obvious to them that I was the favorite. Please don't do this to my children. Please don't create this dynamic between my two children that you created for me. And Yaakov's reaction back is actually very sad as well. And you feel his pain because he refuses to listen because he and but it's not out of pure stubbornness. He says, Yadati bini Yadati, like I get it. I understand what you're saying, Yosef. I don't want to do this either, but I have to. Because when it comes to blessings, this actually matters for the future. And this one is going to be greater than this one. Ephraim is going to be greater than Menasha, and therefore I have to. And in history, you certainly see that because from Ephraim comes Yahushua, from Ephraim comes Devorah, from Ephraim, yes, also Yeravam, but you know, from Ephraim comes leadership, from Menasha comes lower level leadership, Gidon, Yiftach, you know, Yair and Sefer Shoftim. And therefore, what Yaakov is saying is, you know, my hands are literally tied here. I have to give the greater blessing, you know, to Ephraim because for Jewish history purposes, he needs the greater blessing. But I understand from a human emotion that this is something that's going to cause a problem. And we do see that there is a problem that develops slowly between Ephraim and Menashe, especially when you get to Sefer Shoftim and they have an alliance in Parag Aleph, B'nai Yosef. And then in the middle of Sefer Shoftim, there's a civil war between them where they're killing each other out. So you see how the jealousy between them does develop and turns into something bad. So on the one hand, Yaakov's right because Ephraim is greater than Menashe. But on the other hand, Yosef's right, because creating this dynamic does lead to tragedy. They're both right. And at the end of the day, it's just, that's one of the conclusions of Sefer Breshid, which is we have this, you know, we have these two perspectives that are both true at the exact same time. One tribe is going to be greater than the other. One, certain tribes are are deemed for leadership. Certain tribes are not. That's just true. But on the other hand, we want everyone to get along as an am. And those two things putting together are something that's really difficult, which is why I, I there was one Mafarish that really stuck out for me in, in such a beautiful way because it put together these two perspectives and it really blew my mind when I read it. There's this beautiful Nachshoni that says that Yaakov really did understand what Yosef was saying because what he did was he, he had two choices. He could have said, Ephraim, move to my right hand. Menashe, move to my left hand. And instead, he very quietly says, put your heads down, which is not in the Pasuk, but that's the assumption. And he switches his hands so that his right hand is on Ephraim's head. But Menashe doesn't know because Menashe doesn't see that the hands are flipped. And therefore, had Yosef not said anything, Yaakov actually could have accomplished both goals. He could have not created the dynamic of them knowing that one was chosen over the other. But at the same time, he would have still put his right hand on Ephraim. And had Yosef not said anything, that would have been true. And therefore, Yaakov, you do see the growth of Yaakov at the end, where he's trying, he's trying not to create that jealousy between the brothers, which of course gets ruined by Yosef saying something. But at the same time, he's, he's very clear that the blessings has to go to the right child. I'll be honest, the question that sticks out of my mind, and I guess if we're coming towards like the end of Sefer Breshit, 
and I'm, I'm not sure that we've ever answered this clearly, is that you said that, you know, Yaakov is trying to sort of uh, hold both ends of the rope, right? He wants to give the blessing to the appropriate child, and he also doesn't, in theory, he doesn't want to hurt their feelings. And it goes back to this question of what is the purpose of these blessings, right? Of which, you know, again, we've we've danced around it for for a long time. But I'm just curious, even if briefly, if what, what your thoughts are on that question of, you know, what does that mean that he has to give the blessing? Like, if one of them is doomed to be great, then he'll be great, even if it's not perfect pronounced verbally. So I'm just curious what you think about that. I, mean, I, I guess that's true, except we do have this concept of Yaakov giving blessings at the end of his life, Moshe also giving blessings at the end of their life. And I, I guess one could you know, who knows, you know, we all would have been what the tribes were supposed to be with that, with or without their blessings. But there does seem to be some sort of prophecy that's going on with both of their blessings, because the blessings are not just about the past, but they're also about the future. Mm -hmm. And that's what's so interesting about both Yaakov and Moshe's. And to some extent, there's a growth. If you compare what Yaakov says about the tribes to Moshe saying about the tribes, the obvious, you know, some of the most obvious differences is, of course, that Shimon is lacking in Moshe's blessings and Shimon is in the blessings of Yaakov. But there certainly is this differences but similarities between those two. But all of them are looking back at what has happened with the tribes and therefore saying what they believe the future will be based on the attributes the tribes have. So nothing's coming out of left field. Everything kind of fits beautifully into the picture. But it's really this picture of Yaakov looking at his children and saying, these are the attributes you have and therefore the future that's going to come come from you is going to be in line with these attributes, which is actually the thesis of my book, Tribal Blueprints, which is that who the tribes are in Sefer Breshit is actually reflected throughout all of Tanakh. And if you go to any story in Tanakh and look up what tribe that person comes from, it will reflect back on the story in Breshit and, and vice versa. They all go together, like to an extent that you could tell a story and you could actually, say, oh, that sounds like a Don character, or that sounds like a Yehuda character. And I would say nine out of 10 times, it's always true. Like it actually works beautifully that the characters really fit the personalities and the qualities uh, and even the storyline sometimes repeat itself uh, of the original tribes in Sefer Breshit. So I think the blessings are not changing anything. They're actually just stating what is true about each tribe and therefore saying that will reflect the future of what your tribe is going to be. And I don't think the, the blessings made it happen. I think that is what's happening, but that's the genius of Yaakov, that he could look into his own children and see what that means, not just for who they are now, but who they're going to be or who their children will be in the future. When you're talking about a national destiny, it's just like a future monarch has to pretty much know, do you know what I'm saying, what's in store. They're not living a life with all of these, oh, well, maybe I'll end up being a fireman. Do you know what I'm saying? Meaning they they, they have to sort of have a clear sense of their future. So while a little bit of modern sensibility is apparent, I sometimes it's hard for me to read these blessings. On the other hand, you know, the context of, of the prophecy and of the grandness of who they're supposed to be, I think is part of the answer. So there's really two stories that we have earlier in Breshit where there's a silence of Yaakov that's actually disturbing a little bit, but also leaves us at this cliffhanger of what's Yaakov actually thinking. And it gets concluded in the brachot uh, that he gives to those children. And the first one, of course, is Ruvain, which is you know, for sometimes when you read the story, Vayishkavitz Bilha, which we're not getting into right now, that's not our Parsha, of the different ways to understand what Ruvain did, but the reaction of Yaakov is so striking. Vayishma Yisrael, and he heard. 
nothing. And then there's nothing. The puzzle concludes, has 12 sons. The question is, is it 12 and not 13? Or is it 12 and Ruvain still included? But there's no reaction of Yaakov. And the only time you see a little bit, a little bit of reaction to it within the storyline is in Perak Membet, when Ruvain says, I'll take, you know, I'll take responsibility for Binyamin. And Yaakov's response is, Lo yared no way. You know, <laughs> he's not going with you. I don't trust you, which could be a result of Vayishkavitz Bilha, it could be a result of the fact that Yosef disappears and he blames Ruvain as the oldest, but the conclusion of what he really feels, and specifically of the story with Bilha, comes up in our Parsha, when it, it's 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 harsh, it's harsh, but you you feel the pain of Yaakov as he, Ruvain Becharia you had all the potential, Kolchi, Vereshit Oni, you were the first, you really, you had all that ability, you had Yetzer Save, Yetzer Oz, you had all the possibility for, as Rashi says, for Malchus and Kahuna, for everything, but you were reckless, and because you were reckless and whatever it is that you did with your father's bed, you know, it's all over for you. You've lost all that opportunity, which really gets sealed when Divrei Hayamim kind of concludes, Ruven Bechor Yisrael, he was the Bechor, but because what he did, Bechor goes to Yosef, and of course, uh, Gvura and leadership goes to Yehuda. So you feel that conclusion of the story. He doesn't scream at him in the sense of, or reject him from the you know, being part of Am Yisrael, and Ruvain is still granted some of the privileges of Bechorah. He's the head of a Degel. He does get listed first many times throughout Tanakh, but you hear Yaakov's conclusion, which is you crossed a line, and the line that you crossed uh, sealed something that you were not able to go back on, and it could be from the lack of tshuva that we feel through the Pesukim. It could be because it was just too far. Uh, certainly, you know, there's a lot to analyze uh, of Ruvain, and, and he's one of what I like to call in my book a tragic hero because he tries he always steps up he always tries but sometimes he misses the boat just by trying a little bit too hard and inappropriately so uh, and this is Yaakov's conclusion to Ruvain which is you're in you're in Am Yisrael but you can't get the privileges of Bechorah you can't get the leadership uh, that's not something that you deserve and that's not something your children uh, will deserve for the future so that I would say is the first you know really pivotal moment that you have here of these brachos where you hear the ending of the Ruvain story. Yeah, the many times in families you have the eldest child who isn't a, totally able to step up into that role, right? Meaning birth birth order threw them into it, but something in their personality really just didn't fit totally in that in that role. So for us, that's something that we can identify, you know, in the world around us. And I think that one of the most powerful uh, representations or manifestations of of Uven's position in the family is, of course, when he asks to not settle with everybody. And I think that that needs to be seen as a result of this, meaning Reuven, the son, is somebody who was always someone on the outside. He wasn't the one they wanted to listen to. He said something who was a little bit annoying sounding. He wanted to be kind and show he was devoted, but he offered to kill his two sons. Right? I mean, there's something about Reuven that's always just, it's just sort of difficult to, to process. And so when Reuven later asks not to settle, right, asks Moshe not to settle, it's really just the the product of of. Of, of this whole situation because he was always sort of a bit outside of, of the circle of, of the family. Right. 
Absolutely. And even in that story, only the first Pasuk, Ruvain's listed first. It's Ruvain and God. And then after that, it's God and Ruvain. And Ramban so beautifully points out is because even in that story, Ruvain doesn't even step up to lead the negotiations and all that. Like he has this idea. He wants to lead on his own, be on the other side, have that freedom. But even in that story, God is the one who leads the show. And on your first point that what we normally have expectations of the older child, if you look throughout Tanakh, it's almost never the older child who actually becomes the leader. If you go through all of our history, right, Yitzhak is not the oldest, Yaakov is not the oldest, you know, and in the Shvatim, obviously, but keep going, Moshe is not the oldest, Dov is not the oldest, you know, and almost every single one that you could go through of our leadership, we either don't know, uh, but they're certainly never the oldest child. So, you know, there is a message there of you need to deserve leadership, you need to have those qualities that deem you worthy, you can't just assume you're going to inherit it. Uh, which is one of the fundamental flaws of Malchus, because Malchus, it does normally get inherited by the oldest child. So certainly that becomes a conflict once Malchus begins. But this starts that precedence of, yes, Reuven, you're the oldest. I mean, all of Sefer Breshid actually starts that precedence. Uh, but there's always this assumption the oldest is going to be chosen. And here, once again, we've solidified that the oldest is not chosen. Yeah. So I have a lot of thoughts psychologically, but we'll leave that for a different conversation. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can move to Shimon and Levi. They're good too. <laughs> why don't Why don't we talk a little bit about Yosef and his brothers and the way that sort of? Do you want to watch Shimon and Levi first, oh. and then we'll go to Yosef while we're on oh, the did I miss, uh, blessing? Did I missed that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So why don't you say a little bit? Spe speak speak a little we'll bit. Go back to Yosef. Yeah, yeah. You forget it. I'm going to so delete this. You go. You keep going. Okay, fine. So the other uh, really interesting insight from the Brachot, and I'm sure there's so many more, but we'll just stick to for a moment, Shimon and Levi, um, because the ending of the Shimon and Levi story, which of course here in the blessing, Shimon and Levi Achim, you know, signifies for us that Yaakov looks at them as this group of two. And the reason why he looks at them as a group of two is because in Perak Lamedalid, right, we have the entire story of Shechem. And in the ending of that story, at least Shimon and Levi come together uh, to kill out Shechem and the entire you know, town and to rescue, of course, their sister. And there's this back and forth. Yaakov gets upset with them for what they do. And then the conclusion of the story is Shimon and Levi say, right? Could we really leave our sister in such a horrible way? And then silence from Yaakov. So this is another one of those stories that you don't know. Was he silent because he agreed with them? Was he silent because he still disagreed with them, but walked off in a huff? Is it part of Yaakov's personality, like we saw by Ruvain, that he doesn't respond, even if he, you know, disagrees? So here again is the conclusion to that story where you very clearly see he is angry with Shimon and Levi. The Shimon and Levi bracha here is probably not a bracha. There's a curse included in it, arur apam. Um, but there's a few really interesting things that happen in this uh, few psukim that he talks about Shimon and Levi because first of all, he doesn't curse them. He curses their anger. So the second um, bracha that I wanted to focus on that's a conclusion to a story that was left as a cliffhanger is the bracha that's given to Shimon and Levi. Shimon and Levi are given as a joint bracha, which is the only joint bracha that we have. Shimon Levi Achim is the way uh, this, I, I, I'm calling it a bracha, even though it doesn't really uh, end up being a blessing at all. Uh, but the words of Yaakov are put together as one unit. And of course, the reason why this is such an interesting piece is because it ends a story that 
that we really didn't know the ending to, which is the story of Parak Lamadala. And Parak Lamadala, Shimon and Levi act in unison, and this is obviously a reaction to that, where um, Shimon and Levi go and they kill out the city of Shechem to rescue their sister Dina, who's been kidnapped and raped. And in that story, Yaakov first yells at them, you've ruined our reputation, and then they answer their father, Hakizonia Setachotenu, really, should we have let you know them treat our sister this way? And then there's silence on behalf of Yaakov. There's no more response. The parak ends. And the question is, did Yaakov agree with them at the end? Did Yaakov still disagree with them? We don't know the conclusion to that story and what Yaakov felt. And that's what we have here uh, in our Parsha. When Yaakov is reacting to them, we see very clearly he's reacting to the anger and what they did in that story. It's unclear if he's also hinting to what happened with Yosef. But Arura Pamkiaz, he clearly is reflecting on the anger that they have and therefore what they do with that anger. And one of the most fascinating things that I find of this bracha, because it comes as one, and it, again, it, it doesn't seem to be very positive, he punishes them, first of all, he curses their anger and curses them in terms of, you know, the actions that they did, but there's also the repercussions he gives. He personally doesn't want to be listed amongst them, but of course that phrase, that they're going to be to some extent divided up and scattered, uh, which is going to have repercussions on their tribes in the future, but it's all put together in these three psukim, both for Shimon and Levi. And what's interesting is that the future of Shimon and Levi are completely different. They're almost as opposite as could possibly be, because as we all know, Levi becomes the leaders of Am Yisrael. Everybody from the tribe of Levi is elevated and selected by God. Kohanim all come from Levi. And we have, I would say, our best leaders are coming from Levi. Moshe, Aaron, Shmuel. I mean, these are all Levi characters, as opposed to Shimon, where there's this famous Gemara, Meshavit Shimon, Lo Kam, Lo Shofe, Lo Melch. Sorry, I take that back. There's a famous Medrash, the Alpha Shimoni, that says, Meshavit Shimon, Lo Kam, Lo Shofe, Lo Melch. No leadership is coming from Shimon. And you kind of have to ask the question of how do we have this blessing with opposite results in the future. And certainly there's a lot to discuss here in terms of the extra Breshit stories of Shimon, which are different than Levi. He's, he seemingly is singled out by Yosef uh, in terms of being thrown in jail. And I discuss this more in my book as well, the difference of Shimon and Levi. But there's this beautiful Todot Yitzchak uh, that discusses this, um, these words of Yaakov to clarify that Yaakov saw in them a trait. He saw in them anger. He saw in them kin'ah. He saw zealousness in them both. And what he also saw is that from one of them, they're going to use those traits for the good. And for one of them, it's going to be used for the bad. And Yaakov couldn't tell which one was which. So he couldn't give one a bracha and one a klala because he didn't know which one was going to be the one that good was going to come from and which was going to be the one that bad would come from. But he knew it was going to be one and one. So he puts them together. And then the future is what let us know which one was going to be which. And we certainly see that in the different characters, as we just said, positivity from Levi and only negativity from Shimon in Zimri. Uh, but we also see it in the face-off that they have by Cheta Egel, where, um, or really I should say, take that back, the face-off that they have in the story of Baal Peor, where Pinchas is from Levi and Zimri is from, is from Shimon. And of course, it ends up Pinchas kills Zimri, who's doing this public, you know, rebellion in front of Moshe Rabbeinu. 
So you have the Levi character being the good guy and the Shimon character being the head of that rebellion. And we even have Mepharshim that say by Cheta Egel, where the Pasuk clearly says, Mila Shamalai and the Leviim all come. Uh, we have a Barbanel, many others who say that the people who were worshiping the Egel is the tribe of Shimon. And we see that from the numbers of Bamibar Aleph to Bamibar Chavav, where the numbers of Shimon goes down drastically, showing that it was Shimon who was involved in so many of the sins, uh, and more so even Cheta Egel. So therefore, what we see from here is that throughout the time after Yaakov gives the bracha, where he sees the, the traits that they have, he sees that, you know, you have to have a lot of anger and zealousness being able to kill it in the entire city of Shechem. And maybe there was good and bad in what they did there too. Yes, they rescued their sister. Yes, you know, there was positivity in what they did, but there was also negativity in what they did. In the future, it was going to come out in two very different ways. And of course, Levi turned into the very positive tribe and Shimon the very negative. And therefore, the punishment or the repercussion that he gives, actually comes out differently in the tribe of Levi and the tribe of Shimon. Levi is scattered amongst Am Yisrael and Sefer Yoshua. We get little cities of Levi. They don't get their own piece of land because the implication is small dosages of Levi is actually very good. Small dosages of Levi, they're the leaders. They're the role models. They're the teachers. That's very good. So we scatter them. But Shimon is put on the very bottom inside the territory of, of Yehuda. You feel like the big brother's got to watch over him, even though he's the younger brother, but he's the s stronger brother, Yehuda, who has to guard him or keep him away from all the other tribes that are above them. And therefore, Shimon really has to have that, you know, babysitter on him at all times because there's a danger to exposing Shimon um, of what Shimon might do. And that's what we're seeing as the differences, even though it comes together within the psukim of what we're saying to both Shimon and Levi. But throughout the rest of the story, it actually turns out very differently. One thing that I would just add to also sort of rope it back into uh, back into the previous point you made about Menashe and Ephraim, which is that what's difficult about that commentary, you said of the Toldot Yitzchak, who was the commentary you just mentioned? Yeah, the Toldot Yitzchak. Is that with that commentary is, well, if if Yaakov was able to figure out between Menashe and Ephraim, who was supposed to lead who, so we sort of have this question of, you know, why all of a sudden was there a limitation by, by Shimon and Levi? I think that you could look at it on the flip side, again, to go back to the human side, which is that ultimately these are sort of prescriptions or predictions, but it all comes down to the, what each person does with them. I think there is like a duality here of him saying, this is what I've seen. This is how I'm describing you, which to some extent answers this big question to me, which is even though Ela told us Yaakov Yosef, did Yaakov get to know all of his other sons? Like, did he take the time to spend time with all of them? And I think that nagging feeling of how could he just care about Yosef and no one else is solved for us when we get to the brachot, because of course he knew all of them and he knew how to speak about all of them and he knew how how to, you know, only a parent knows the child in a way to be able to really, you know, within a few sentences, capture the essence of their child. And I find a lot of comfort in the fact that there's 12 blessings at the end, 12 blessings that make me feel like Yaakov for sure got to know each and every one of his children, appreciated each of his children. And you, when you critique a child, it's also because you see their potential. So even if the blessing is not as positive for some versus the other, you feel in him, him critiquing them saying, you could do better, you know, you can use this for the good. And I'm hoping that you'll use this for the good. And you leave Sefer Breshid, at least with the death of Yaakov, as everybody 
goes together to bring him into, you know, to Eretz Yisrael. Everyone mourns him together. Even the Egyptians mourn him. The appreciation of that family dynamic uh, at the end of the Sefer, which in so many ways parallels the ending of Sefer Devarim, where Am Yisrael cries for the death of Moshe. And, and you kind of have that feel of everybody's at a loss here. This is not just a loss to Yosef, the, the favorite child. This is a loss to all of his children, um, because by the end, there, there is a bond between Yaakov and all of his children. Yeah, really beautiful. I guess to, to round out this, this uh, conclusion to the book of Breshit, we really have to get back to the story of Yosef and his brothers, right? Because the book of Breshit spends so much more time on that dynamic than it does on any other one. And so I'm curious if we could speak in our time that remains for today, if we could sort of speak to, to the dynamic that, that exists between, between the brothers. Right. I love the ending of this story because it's so incredibly beautiful and you you see the growth of Yosef in such a beautiful way. The very ending of um, Sefer Breshi Perak Nun has this most I know, beautiful story, a, a story that's so sad, but also a story that concludes the relationship of Yosef and his brothers, but it shows the growth of Yosef in such an impressive way. Because the brothers come to Yosef and they say, our father said before he died to tell you, forgive us, please, please forgive us, you know, for what we did. And, and one of the fascinating pieces is it that they they fall on his faces on their faces and they say will be your servants and in that moment you actually feel like this is what Yosef wanted. This is everything that Yosef wanted. His dreams were, you're going to bow down to me, that you're, right, those are exactly the dreams that he had. And here they are coming true because every time they, every time they bowed down to him earlier, they didn't know it was him. But here they know it's him and they're bowing down to him. And what's interesting as a side note to the story is we don't even know if this is true. Uh, the Gemara and Yevamos Samachem Abet tells us that this is a lie. The brothers are not actually telling the truth. Um, but they're so incredibly nervous that Yosef is going to take revenge on them. So they feel they have to make up this lie. And whether or not it's a lie or not, what you feel is from the brother's end, there's unfinished business. From their brother's end, they feel like the reason why Yaakov, that Yosef is treating them so beautifully is because Yaakov is alive. And he would never do that in front of his father. But there's this nagging feeling that they have that the minute Yaakov's not there, Yosef is, the true Yosef is going to come back out, that Yosef that they know from the past, and Yosef is going to take revenge on them. And here you have this moment where Yosef could have taken advantage and he could have said, you know what, dad gave the bracha that I'm not the leader, but hey, I could change it now. I could be the leader. They're bowing down to me. I can change, you know, the course of, of what's going to be for the future. And the answer of Yosef is, it. I think it's it's one of those tear-jerking moments because it's so incredibly beautiful where he says, do you really think I'm instead of God? You thought to be bad, to do bad to me, but, but really this all came from Hashem. And then his response is, do not worry, I'll take care of you. And one of my favorite phrases, he calms them down. He doesn't just say it's all okay and walk away. He makes sure that they're comforted and they really believe him that he really does forgive them and that everything is okay and that he doesn't want them to bow down to him, that they don't, he doesn't want them to be his servants uh, anymore. And I think it's the most beautiful ending to the Sefer where you actually see when we have this Sefer that is full of sibling rivalry and tensions, 
and choosing one versus the other, which is all of Sefer Breshit, the ending of the Sefer is we can actually all be chosen. And, and it doesn't have to be one over the other. And even though dad may have loved me more at different points in time, right, we can all be okay. Uh, and you don't have to worry. I'm not going to assert my power back over you. And not only that, I'm going to help you and I'm going to feed you and I'm going to take care of you because I'm one of you. And it's one of the most, you know, beautiful endings of the Sefer, the conclusion of the story of whatever happened between Yosef and his brothers, because you don't know when they come down, how much interaction they have with Yosef. Once they go to the land of Goshen, they may see him quite rarely. Uh, so this is the conclusion to that story and then Sefer Bereshit actually does in within the language a really fascinating conclusion because when you look at the very end the very end of our Parsha it really focuses on Yosef right the brothers you know apologize to Yosef and then kind of it focuses back on Yosef where they take Yaakov's body out of Mitzrayim they go to Eretz Yisrael Yosef leads the show and then of course when they come back we hear about how many years Yosef lives for Yosef then gives you know calls his children on his death bed and asks them please to take his body out resembling what his dad did with him and then the ending of Sefer Breshid is Yosef dies that's the ending of Sefer Breshid so to some extent you know our Parsha ends back with Ela Toldos Yaakov Yosef and we end with Yosef and everything is about Yosef with this story where Yosef clearly says it's not about me I'm part of Am Yisrael and I think that piece gets captured when you start Sefer Shemot in the following week's Parsha where yes we start again Ela Shemot and yes, we're told Yosef Ayabim Mitzrayim, but then Yosef dies and everyone else highlighting Yosef. But then we have this Asher Lo Yadat Yosef, the king doesn't know Yosef, and then we turn into B'nai Yisrael Am Yisrael. And then the focus is we're all in this together. We're not being separated out by tribes anymore. Am Yisrael goes and you know suffers Galus Mitzrayim together and has to come out as this beautiful nation. So you know you really feel the ending of Parshas Vayechi. This again, this dynamic of or I would say even like this duality of Yosef being the star, Yosef being the focus of Sefer Breshit versus Yosef saying, I'm part of Am Yisrael and I want to be part of you. And that, of course, transfers us into Sefer Shemot. Yeah, I think that's really a, a many beautiful ideas wrapped into one. I think that one I would just add as a compliment is that I, I always look at this this peric as the the repair for all of the rivalry that's happened throughout, meaning exactly that. In that moment, Yosef could have gone in the other direction. He had his brothers totally, you know, supplicating before him. And he chooses, even though it must have been very tempting, more fulfillment of his dreams if he didn't already have enough of them. And, and he chooses at that moment to not be that brother, to not be the one who takes advantage of the other. And I think it's always very beautiful. And I recently found a midrash that also says this exact same thing, is that, you know, we meet the first set of brothers in the second uh, chapter of, Sh of the book of Shemot, and there's no rivalry between them, even over the exact same dynamic of a younger child who's, you know, chosen over the over the older one. And so there is really something not even more than poetic, it's also precedent setting in, in this in the way that Yosef really is able to repair because all of these years, as you said, they likely didn't meet each other. They didn't live particularly close. And and you know, this the brothers are always concerned that there's just going to be a repeat performance the second that Yaakov is not there. And I think that also in that moment, Yosef really 
prove themselves to be the leader that he was. And one more thing I'll just mention is that what's also really contrasted in that last chapter is the way that the Egyptians deal with death versus the way that Israel deals with death. And the way the Egyptians deal with death is essentially by sort of like winning or taking control over it. They have to prepare the body, assumption that obviously there's a lot that's going to be happening in that afterlife, but it's a, it's a way of really taking control. Um, but the way that that we deal with it, and this I'm taking from the ever ever phenomenal commentary of, of uh, Professor Leon Kass on, on Breshit, is that he says that the way of Israel is the way of memory, keeping alive not the bodies of the dead, but their ever-living legacy in relation to the ever-living God. And so, you know, while we do physically take part of, of Yosef with, it's a part that's really, you know, it's not really going to have any of that form anymore. And so that's such a different way of of, of keeping of keeping uh, memory alive and of course it's going to again loom and be present for the people uh, in the in the next journey forward and forever in the way that we we deal with uh, with end of life and that's really in the way that how we end the book of Breshit is by ending that era and that chapter before we move on to on to the next era. Um, th- this episode closes our series on Breshit, which focused on the nexus between being chosen and actualizing that potential in the world. We began with chosen individuals, Noach, Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, just to name a few, and we end the book with the understanding that just like being the chosen son isn't a recipe for an easy, lofty life, being the chosen people will provide just the beginnings for our national destiny in the world. Our series on Shmot focuses on personalities, mainly 19th and 20th century thinkers and biblical commentators who have significant ideas to offer on each week's Parsha. Each episode will delve a bit into their lives and thinking in order to understand how their unique perspectives impact their readings of that week's Parsha. Uh, We will be talking Chassidut, modern German commentators, and so much more. So stay tuned for wonderful new guests and conversations. Uh, Nechama, it was an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do One-on-One and Women's Torah Learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone. A few important Matan updates. All of our podcast episodes are currently being uploaded to a special YouTube channel. Check out Matan's YouTube channel and you'll see on the toolbar, a way to connect to all of our podcast episodes. If that's easier for you, please listen to us there and of course share it with all your friends and family. All donations to Matan until the end of the 2023 year will be matched. You can sponsor a podcast episode or any other Matan programs. And please make sure to check out a new episode up on our feed, a conversation between Rabbanit Osho Korin and Chaya Bina Katz about what Matan is up to these days inside and outside the Beit Midrash. Here's a little snippet. For the past 36 years, Matan has really been foundational in creating an environment for women's Torah learning. But specifically in the past two months, since October 7th, the activities that Matan 
is doing and have inspired people to do really transcends not only the Beit Midrash, and we'll talk about the Beit Midrash a bit also, but beyond that, reaching out to the communities that both of you live in and beyond. 